Welcome back to Christian Life Academy. We are in episode three. No, this is the third uh, part of our introduction to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. We are going to be uh, working our way through the entire confession over the next 10 years. No, uh, hopefully it's much, much, much shorter than that. Um, the last time only took six years, so I'm thinking this time will probably be less. At any rate, um, along with that, um, we have begun again and looking at an introduction. Now, the introduction is primarily aimed at just a few goals. One is to just understand the importance and the reasons for creeds and confessions and uh, what their place has been and why they're important. Uh, you will definitely hear people uh, that say that they don't need a creed. They'll make a statement, something like, no creed but Jesus, no confession but the Scripture, something like that, um, which is completely false. As soon as they say that to you, you can say you just violated your own creed. And they can say, what do you mean? And you can say, because your creed is no creed but Jesus. Which Jesus do you mean? Well, the Jesus of the Bible. The same Jesus that the Jehovah's Witness have? Same Jesus that the Mormons have? Well, no. I mean the Jesus according to how we worship Jesus and how we believe Jesus. Okay, that's your creed, you understand. So this anti-creedalism uh, is really false. And, of course, it's really based, and you can understand this, on the idea that creeds and confessions, as they were used by the Roman Catholic Church in particular, but other denominations as well, began to be recognized as equal with Scripture. So the pendulum swung the other way to say, we can't have any creeds or confessions because it's only the Scripture that's God's Word. Do we believe that? Of course we believe that. We do not say that our confession is equal with God's Word. In fact, all the major confessions all say that they are not God's Word. Our confession says that. So we view our confession as a distillation of the Scripture. It's distilled down to summaries. Just like we talk about um, the Trinity, is the word Trinity in the Scripture? No, but Trinity explains something to us. We understand something by using the word Trinity, three and one. We understand this, but the word itself isn't in Scripture. Is the word Trinity then unbiblical to use? No, you can't say that, but is the word Trinity then scriptural? Eh, now you're in a gray area, aren't you? Is, is it scriptural to use? Well, sure, you could use it because it... it it describes the nature of God in the three persons. But is it in the Bible? No. You see the, you see the difference there? So when someone says, well, I don't believe any creeds or confessions. Okay, that's their creed. Their creed is I have no creeds. Because a creed is what you believe. It's just that simple. A creed is what you believe. You can say, well, I believe in God, country, and the American way. That's your creed. Don't, don't make that your creed. I'm just saying that's a creed, because that's what you believe. All right. So at any rate, introduction. I said I wasn't going to do much review. I already got myself in trouble. So we're going to keep moving. So we were talking about uh, the Apostles' Creed, and then we got into this idea of what, it, why the Apostles' Creed. So this is what I talked about, that usually creeds are, were a response to a particular heresy. So now we're going to look at what things come out of the Apostles' Creed. Don't forget... The Apostles' Creed, first of the ecumenical creeds, firmly established by 380 A.D. It, was, it is still in use today in many churches, including our own, because it is the most succinct, full statement of our beliefs. Is it the shortest creed? No. 
Can you think of one shorter in the Bible? Paul's. I'm sorry. No, Paul made a good one, but his wasn't as short. He made several. His wasn't as short. Peter's. Christ says, who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? That's his creed. Shorter than the Apostles' Creed. But we had to have the Apostles' Creed because there were some aspects of that creed that were being debated in a heretical way. So, why the Apostles' Creed? Well, first of all, it's a way to confess what we believe before God. It is our confession of, what Christian, what do you believe? That's how we start that. It is an instrument in which we publicly confess the essential biblical truths before the world. So when we quote the Apostles' Creed, we print it in our bulletin, we're saying to the world, or whoever's there to hear it and see it, this is what we believe. We're not making a mystery, it's not a secret, you don't have to join the secret club in order for you to find out what we believe. That's what we believe. It declares core Christian doctrine. Core Christian doctrine. The Apostles' Creed states explicitly the core Christian doctrines. Are all the doctrines encompassed in the Apostles' Creed? No. Of course they're not all. They're not all in the Confession. Right? We add things into the Confession to explain them as we go, but they're the cores. They're the most important. It protects against heresies. By using the Apostles' Creed, we're protecting against heresy. Every heresy? No. But major heresies. Right? Modalism, for instance. Although... We did have to get to the Nicene and the Athanasian Creed fully to deal with modalism, but we'll, we'll, don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Like Modalism, yeah, we'll get to it. It's an effective disciple-making instrument. I mentioned last week that for centuries, the church used the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed as the way to disciple new believers. They taught them those and explained them so they understood them. That was the core teaching. It wasn't a catechism as such, but it was kind of the curriculum, so to speak, for the core. So think about it. What do you have in those three things? You have the law, right? Here is the way that, here is the things you should not do. Don't do these things. This is what God wants you to do to be holy. Don't do these things. Then what do you have in the Lord's Prayer? How you should believe, how you should act as a believer, Right? This is, how, this is who, what you should be concerned about. This is what you should be focused on. And then we get to the Athanasian Creed, and now it's a little distinct understanding of the truths that are not contained in either of those. In other words, is there something that explains the three persons of the Trinity in either the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer? No, not referenced in either one. You with me on this? So that's why these three things were used together. Okay. All right, so 10 key doctrines in the Apostles' Creed. 10 key, so these are the ones we're just talking about, the key doctrines that are contained there, core Christian doctrines. Here they are. The necessity of personal faith. How? Well, it starts with I believe, not we believe. Do you remember this? So we said, Christian, what do you believe? I believe. That's the way. We don't say we believe. It's a personal faith. Second is the doctrine of God. Why, how? God is specifically, right off the bat, God is mentioned. I believe, what? Anybody have memorized? God the Father Almighty. Maker, what? Maker of heaven and earth. That's right. Right off the bat, we hit core doctrine number two. And actually, there's, there's actually a sub-doctrine there 
right? Do you, do you hear what it was there in that little statement that we just said? Creator of heaven and earth. Christian doctrine of creation, right? Doctrine of the Trinity is contained in the Apostles' Creed. Christ and the Holy Spirit, both specifically mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Salvation by grace alone in Christ alone, specifically in the Apostles' Creed. Wow. This is pretty basic stuff, isn't it? But pretty all-encompassing. Look, if you hit these right here, one through four, that's pretty much about as core as you need to be. Because if you, if you understand that it's not, you're not going to get, you're not gonna, your determination for heaven and hell and eternity is not going to be based on a group that you're a part of, but it's going to be based on you personally. And if you recognize that there is Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, and you understand that he has a son and he sent his son to die for your sins, and you understand there is a Holy Spirit, that now resides within you? That's the qualifications for salvation. You don't actually even have to understand this. You want to. It's good, right? That's a good one. Resurrection and ascension. You want to understand that these things are true, but it's not necessary for salvation. But key doctrine, resurrection and ascension. Where do we see ascension? Christ. That's true. Good point. So we see this doctrine in there. First five. Six, the return of Christ, the second coming. There's a lot of doctrines in this thing, isn't there? You don't notice it, but this is why it's so succinctly written. The resurrection of the dead in Christ. Christ was resurrected. We see the example in him. The eventual judgment. Christ is going to judge. It says that in the, in the, in the, in the creed, the great white throne we're talking about. The existence of heaven and hell. That's mentioned in there, to both. The church is universal, indivisible, and triumphant, which is the Catholic. Right? Catholic. Or as my kids used to say, Catholic. We let them keep saying that. It was too cute. Anyway, they don't say it anymore, but I'm saying they used to. Anyway, the church is universal, indivisible, and triumphant. You can agree. That's, those are pretty significant doctrines that are contained in this little thing. So you can see why to use that as part of the way that you disciple a new believer, you're covering pretty significant doctrines for them. Right? You're really going to hit on these major things and why they're so important. Okay, so the Apostles' Creed is read aloud in many churches today and has been for 1,900 years since the time... Of the New Testament was since the time the New Testament was completed. Often it is included in worship as a qualifier for congregants to participate in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Often it's prefaced with a question, Christian, what do you believe? By the way, many churches use it before baptism. They'll ask the person to be baptized, what do you believe? And they'll recite the Apostles' Creed. All right. So I don't have it on the slide here, but I'll read the Apostles' Creed now just because you haven't heard it before. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. All right, so you've heard that one before, so that's not a surprise on you. All right. The Nicene Creed. Well, the Nicene Creed was written in response to the heresy of Arianism. So this necessitates us to actually talk about what Arianism is. And I wish that I could tell you that Arianism is dead and gone. It's not. Not only was it revived several times, and we're going to talk about that in church history before the Nicene and then the Athanasian Creed, but it continues to exist today in several different forms, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. But Arianism is still around. And you're going to see, when we get into chapter 1 of the Scripture, how important understanding this heresy is. So look, you know, it's warm in here. I'm warm. Anybody else warm? This is what, Paul, take your jacket off if you want, Paul. It's warm in here. I know it's going to be hard to pay attention to this, but I just challenge you to pay attention to what the heresy of Arianism was. Why it was so vigorously debated. Why it took an emperor to call a council to deal with this heresy. How the scripture, how the God worked through the circumstances to deal early on with this heresy. Because this heresy directly affects modern translations of Scripture. Directly. And you'll see that. All right. So Arius, who was the see or the bishop of Alexandria. So pause for a second just to make sure we get this. It's one of the three prominent cities of Christendom. Alexandria, Rome, and Antioch. So by the time we get to this time period, we're going to talk about dates in a minute. There were three major cities of Christendom. All right. Three. In the east, Antioch, which eventually moved to Constantinople, head of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which we talked about. Rome, obviously, stayed in Rome, became the Roman Catholic Church. And then Alexandria, which, interestingly enough, depending on which denomination you talk to, they will say that they came from Alexandria. There are several, particularly African denominations, they will say they came out of Alexandria. I would never want to say I came out of Alexandria. Because it was heresy. It was full of heresy. You'll see it. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. So Arius is the see or the bishop. He was the, at this point, we got to this point, they had one person who acted as the overseer, and they gave him the title of the see. Still used today. Many denominations will say there is the see. Who is the see of Rome? It's the Pope. The Pope is the see of Rome. Are there other sees in the Roman Catholic Church? There are. There are. Cardinals. Cardinals are all C's. So you have a Cardinal of Detroit. He's the C of Detroit. Cardinal of New York, the C of New York. Cardinal of, of Boston, C of Boston. All right. The title doesn't matter. All right. The, the key is, is that they're the overseer. That's the idea. So Arius was the C of Alexandria. Now he was influenced by Aristotelian philosophy. Now what is that? Well, that's from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Now Aristotle... It's really interesting. If you, if you look at even some today, uh, you look up and you try to learn what is Aristotle's philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, what is that? You start by reading some basics, but then right away it goes into explanations of how it's not largely accepted today. Now that's pretty interesting. Because do you ever hear anything negative about Aristotle? He's always like, oh man, Aristotle, wow, Aristotle. Well, it mean. Okay, we don't talk about Aristotle very often, right? Are you with me? But if you're into philosophy, you would. 
or logic, you would see it, but he's not widely accepted today. Now, the reason is that Aristotle's primary explanation for how things, what logic worked and how it did is, if you could not explain it, then you didn't know the answer. But you should be able to explain everything. Essentially, all knowledge of everything that exists can be derived from observation or experimentation or deduction. Are you with me on this? In other words, his philosophy was there's no, nothing that exists, no unanswered questions, there's nothing that exists that you can't explain. Now you can see how that's a problem. That's a problem because it takes out of the equation the metaphysical. So what are we talking about? Physical and metaphysical. We're talking about things that we can see, feel, touch, and things that are spiritual. That's metaphysical. That's what we're talking about. Spirit. Okay. Wind is not metaphysical. You can feel it. You can't touch it, but you can feel it. Are you with me on that? All right, so metaphysical is spiritual things. Aristotle said, no, everything can be explained. Everything can be explained. So the danger of believing that is that then you take the power of God out. Right? So you say, well, how did this person possibly live through this? There's no way they could have lived. They had to die, and they lived. How do you explain it? God. How do you explain somebody rising from the dead? You can't, there's no way that can happen. The person's dead. You cannot bring, they cannot just come back to life. If you're, if you're going by pure logic and pure evidence, you'd have to say that's true. So how do you explain Lazarus? God. Right? So you see what I mean? You see the danger of this? Is that when you take God, you say, that can't be, and you start to apply all these logical rules, you start to have a serious issue. And this is what happened to Arius. He was influenced by Aristotle. So he applied the rules of creation. I'm sorry, he applies the rules for the creation to God. So he saw things in creation and applied them to God. So he said Christ was not God. So Arius, is a, he's a C, right? He's a believer. But this idea that there could be three persons in one in the Trinity couldn't be observed. So what would he say? He had to be created. There's just no question. Now, he believed he endued him with divinity, but he wasn't equal with God. Notice that the creed says he is God. But it doesn't say it clear enough because it just says that he's the son of God. So Arius says he's not equal with God. He's not God. He's a God. You see this? This is a problem. Arianism spread dramatically and threatened Orthodox Christianity. The strongest opponent to the heresy of Arianism was Alexander, who was the see of Antioch. He called for a local council of bishops in the area of Greece, who then called for Arius to repent. He did not. Then he called for a council of all the bishops of Africa, which Arius was the see over who also condemned Arius as a heretic and sent letters to all the other bishops in Christendom asking them to acknowledge their decision. So he got all of the African bishops together that were he was over, and they all said he's acting heretical and condemned him. They sent letters to all the other bishops, so now you're sending them to all over Christendom, 
and saying, look, here's what we've met, here's what we've discussed, here's what we say, we need you to acknowledge this. Arius then held his own counsel of those around him that were loyal to him, and he condemned Alexander and the other bishops. So now we're at a bit of a stalemate. So the new Christian emperor, Constantine, sends a letter to both, condemning them and essentially asking them to get along. They did not. So, be careful what you believe about Constantine. Okay, seek source documents to learn more about Constantine. Lots of books and movies and other things have been written to try to change him. Understand this, if you became emperor of the Holy Roman, well, then of the Roman Empire, later Holy Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, you wouldn't do everything right. Would you agree with me on that? Especially if you're a new believer. You would try to do things. You would try to fix things. You're probably not going to do them perfect. Constantine didn't either. But look at it in this case. He sees this happening. He doesn't have any authority over them directly. But he says, look, can you guys please try to get along? It's not going to be good for... It wasn't just can you get along. <laughs> it was a very long letter. And it says, basically, your Christian duty is to get along with your brother. Now, he's missing the implications of the doctrine. Are you with me on this? Which was what was bad about Constantine. There were many things he did, one of which was asking for translations of the Scripture, that he didn't understand doctrine deep enough to understand what the importance was. And so he sends this letter out thinking that if they could just calm down and get along, the problem is averted. Of course, that wasn't the case. In 325, Constantine then called for a general council at Nicaea to consider the issue. So, this was the first ecumenical council of the three churches. There was approximately 300 bishops from all over the empire attended. Were there earlier councils? Yes, Jerusalem council, right? You can think of that right off the bat. There were earlier councils that met to discuss issues that faced the church when there was a disagreement between believers. And I'm not talking about a disagreement over neighbors who are questioning their property line. I'm talking about doctrinal questions. And so he calls this council at Nicaea to consider the issue. Now this is a big deal. The council at Nicaea, if you read a little bit about the history of what happened in Nicaea, this was a huge deal. Constantine treated it as a huge deal and made it into a huge deal. I can't say if the bishops themselves would have made it into a big deal. We don't know that, but we know that to Constantine, he made it into a big deal. Christian emperor, he's like, if we're getting all these bishops together, this should be something that honors God. And so he made it into a big show. So parades as they came into the city, all kinds of pomp and circumstance, recognition, banquets, all these things happened. But the council itself met to determine, the, to determine the, the, what was correct or incorrect about this whole issue with Alexander and Arius both you know, obviously having opposite viewpoints. Well, at the council, a suggestion was positive to simply use the words of the Scripture to clarify the issue. In other words, somebody said, well, wait, can't we just use the words of Scripture to clarify the issue? But Alexander's and others suggested another document was needed. One that used the terms that we understand to define who Christ is. In other words, this was exactly where the problem was. Arius would pick and choose verses of Scripture, even if they were out of context, to say that they supported his position. Ignore the other verses, of course. That's the way that you do it if you have a heresy. And then Alexander would say, well, yes, but there's all these verses, and that verse, you're not using it properly, etc., and so what Alexander suggested is, we need to have a document that says, look, this is what we understand the Scripture to mean. This is the explanation of what we see in the Scripture. Not Scripture. 
just an understanding. So a creed was issued by the council, but was later modified by the Council of Constantinople and called the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. At Chalcedon, in 451 AD, the council approved renaming the Nicene-Constantinople Creed as the Nicene Creed, which is the form that we have it today. Let me read it to you. The more important, this, this didn't last that long, as you're going to see in the next slide, but notice how much longer this is. Okay, so let me read it. Follow along. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Close to the first line, right? They added visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Okay, so there's the key paragraph, right? There's not any wiggle room in that. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, one of the substance, one being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Clarified. Who, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So, a obviously much more robust creed than the Apostles' Creed, however, still wasn't enough. So, the original creed ended with, but those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance, or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So that was the original creed. Basically completely calling Arius on the carpet. Anybody who agreed with him, who made those statements, it said they're condemned by the church. The Council of Nicaea saw the very gospel itself at stake. Christ that was created cannot save us from our sins. That's the issue. Christ that's created can't save us from our sins. Christ that's God can. Christ that's created can't. Because Christ that's created has no more ability to save all of us from our sins than anyone does. Doesn't have it. Sadly, the decisions of the General Council of Nicaea did not end the controversy. So refusing to repent of this heresy, Arius and his inheritance were exiled from the empire, kicked out. However, very shortly, Constantine granted amnesty to all Arians and they returned from exile. So here's Constantine. He's getting pressured by these people, that have, their representatives of those that have been exiled, to allow them to come home. They want to be part of the church. They want to be part of the empire. They're loyal to you. He caves, allows them to come. As a result, Arianism becomes very pro-emperor. Of course they love him. He let Arius come back. So now they're super pro-emperor. Everything Constantine does is good. Everything Constantine says is perfect. 
He's wonderful. He's the best ever. We love him. Okay. To the extent of stating that the emperor was the equivalent to Christ on earth. See any problems there? This just shows how twisted they are. <laughs> Pro-Nicene fathers then look like they are anti-emperor. You see this, right? So in other words, the bishops who then say, no, what happened in Nicaea is correct, they now look like they're anti-emperor. Constantine had called for Arius to be restored as the See of Alexandria. So he said, look, I think he should be restored as the See of Alexandria. And of course, if the emperor suggests something like that, then people are like, ooh, yeah, yeah, we should probably do that. And of course, all of the pro-Arius people who were in Alexandria wanted that to happen. So after he heard it, Alexander prostrated himself in the church and cried out to, that means he laid down on the ground, cried out to God to take his life if he would allow Arius to return to the church so that he would not die with sin in the church. In other words, Arius says, look, I'm sorry, Alexandria says, God, please take my life. I don't want to be alive when there's that kind of sin in your church. <laughs> okay, <laughs> he might not be done with him yet. He further begged God to spare the church of Arius. Okay, so was Alexander's prayers answered? Now, this is all a little confusing to me. You have to, it's just, Arius was from Alexandria. Alexander was from Antioch. You see what I mean? That whole Alexander-Alexandria thing is a little confusing. Just remember, they're not the same. They're separate. All right. So, in Alexandria, a formal royal parade was orchestrated for the installation. Long parade. As Arius was about to arrive at the spot where the ceremony occurred, <laughs> he became violently ill and died on the spot. Now, here's exactly how that went. Well, I'm going to tell you, clean up a little how that went. Arius suddenly felt, as he got close to where he was going to be named to see again, he felt like he had to go to the bathroom. And so they took him on down a side street, and he proceeded to lose his entire insides out. Everything came out from his guts. Died on the spot. Horrible death. Horrible death. Rush Dooney points out that modern heretics... Do not do, want to discount these types of events as unimportant. Look, does that get any clearer? God said no. I mean, he didn't just die. He died a horrible death right before, at the end of this parade, before he was to be named to see. That's called providence. If he was actually alive after the fact, he couldn't use Aristotelian philosophy to explain it. How do you explain that that happened right then? Can't. Athanasius appointed to replace Alexander upon his death at 327. So let me go back here. So notice where we at. Oh, wow, I have to go wait. Forget it. 325 was Nicaea, was Nicaea, right? So all of this stuff, the exile, the return, the call for the sea, all this stuff within two years, pretty soon after this, Alexander dies. Now he was an older guy, but he died. So Athanasius was appointed to replace him as the C, particularly because he defended the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. He particularly preached against Arianism. Now, with Alexander gone and the gravitas that he had over the church, there began to be more problems. 
Athanasius went through periods of exile with a variety of emperors and others in the church. So the emperors would change, church leaders would change. They would say, he's wrong, they'd exile him. Then somebody else would get in power, and they'd say, no, he's right, they'd bring him back. And he kept preaching all this the whole time. Meanwhile, the Arians began infighting with a group embracing the idea of semi-Arianism. So now they had a group that came out that said, well, we, think, we don't quite think as much as Arius thought, but we believe some of those aspects. So they started to have a fight among themselves. Athanasius did not agree with some other church leaders that a new creed was needed. Instead, he believed in a reissue of the Nicene Creed. So other church leaders said, look, we need a new creed. We need something that's going to explain this a little further, that much more succinctly to get this done. He said, you know what? We already have a creed. If we just hold to that creed, that's enough. That should quell the heresy. When the creed emerges around 500 A.D., so we were at 327, 500, right? He's not around anymore. (laughs) There was a consensus that it should be called the Athanasian Creed. Like the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed was not written by Athanasius, but was thoroughly Athanasian. So we call it the Athanasius Creed because it was really what what he taught not because he wanted it and he didn't write it. Does that make sense? It's rooted in the Augustinian tradition, using exact wording from Augustine's On the Trinity from 415. Sections reflect the teaching of the First Council of Ephesus in 431 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, or 431 and then the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Luther called the Athanasian Creed one of the most important and glorious compositions since the days of the Apostles. That's not light for Luther to call it that. All right, so can you hand out the Athanasian Creed? And we'll read the Athanasian Creed. Now, some of you have read it, and so you know it's um, longer. But keep in mind, it was written to deal with this continuing heresy of Arianism. So they got even more specific about our understanding of these issues in the way that they actually detail it here. So let's, I'll read it and you follow along with me. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. Now you can see right off the bat, this is a very different wording to the other two creeds, right? But you can see where they're going. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. So you see right off the bat, it's explicitly clear on every one of these points. And that's why they're listed here. We're going to read a bunch of them just like this to say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same. So they already made the statement, but now they go through and list each of these different aspects of God to say that each of the three persons of the Trinity, it applies to them equally. And also there are not three, 
uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And that they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. In this Trinity, and in this Trinity, none is afore or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think, thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith, for the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who, although he is God and man, he, is, he yet is not two, but one Christ. One not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he sits on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies, and shall give account of their own works." And they that have done good, th good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, except, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. So that's the Athanasian Creed. And you can see just from the reading that there's a lot of repetition there, right? It seems like, wow, couldn't they just said it all in one sentence? Like, he, God is eternal, he's almighty, you know, all all those things together in one, and then said, you know, but they made it specific so that each line could be used to hold somebody accountable. Somebody says, well, Christ isn't eternal. He came to being after a time or before a time. Now they have a specific sentence they can use to say, that's not correct. We're going to hold you to this. Now, where would they go? They go to Scripture from that. It's not that this became equal with Scripture or something else. But it's a significant creed in Christendom. All right. Historic confessions. So that was creeds. Now we're going to talk about confessions. The Roman Catholic heresy led to the Reformation, creeds, and confessions. While the Scriptures teach that grace alone is needed for salvation, Rome taught that there were additional requirements to be justified. So now we've proceeded through time, uh, 
not quite, but roughly a thousand years, a lot of things could change in a thousand years. And a lot of things did change in a thousand years. And as far as the church goes, the church at Rome and the sea at Rome became a powerful position. And they began to make, as they got different popes, basically, in power, they began to make a lot of claims and do a lot of things that varied and differentiated themselves from the other churches. Now, that's not to say everything was that way. Because obviously, if you know anything about Eastern Orthodox churches, you know that there are a lot of things that they have in common with Roman Catholics. A lot of beliefs that they have, a lot of uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, both that they do, that the you know, ways that they actually conduct their religion, are similar to Rome. And these things actually came out of the early church period. They are not things that uh, started late. The Eastern Church was never part of the Roman Church. The Eastern Church was always separate. But there were things that became common practices for orthopraxy in the church in general. Both of them embraced them and continued to do it. It was Rome that made the change where it began to recognize or began to believe that the words of the Pope were equal with the words of God. It was Rome that began to believe that the councils that they held could make edicts and write canons and they could do things that would basically be equated with Scripture. It was Rome that actually acknowledged the Apocrypha as scriptural not the Eastern churches. So you see a differentiation in the way it went. And if you know anything about history, and I don't encourage you to get into it because it's just bewildering, but the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, maybe half were Christians. Maybe half. And I mean in the early church. I don't mean now, because that's an entirely different kettle of fish. I'm talking about, in the time periods we're talking about, from about 500 A.D., to about 1500 A.D., you could look at that thousand-year period and probably count more non-Christians than Christians. What began to happen was the powerful began to be, name their relatives as popes. So you have men that became... Oh, I'm trying to think. Maybe you guys remember this. The pope that had the most children. Anybody remember that? He had a lot of wives. And he had, I can't remember what, 70 or something. It was a, lot, it was a big number of children because of all the wives he had. Now, they still believe that it was wrong for anybody in clergy to be married. But he was. He was. Didn't apply to him. So you're going to see this thing that's really kind of bad that happens. The church obviously strays pretty far. By the time we get to the, to the Reformation, you begin to see this need for additional confessions. So first, the, let's consider the Westminster Confession. As a result of the English Civil War, Parliament eliminated the bishops that were imposed by King Charles I and reinstated Presbyterianism. So basically what had happened was is that you had a king, King Charles, who really was a Catholic. And so what he did was he put in, as bishops ahead of the church, he put in bishops that were Catholic-leaning, naturally. Not completely honest. Like It's not like, now this is a Catholic church. They, they didn't, he didn't do that, which was probably smart, because it probably would have brought, brought on the Civil War quicker than that, but it still got one. Anyway, he reinstated Presbyterianism. I'm sorry, yeah, the Parliament did, and they called upon learned, godly, and judicious divines to meet in 1643 to provide advice for the Church of England. So basically, they called for the divines to come and for them to actually provide an advice to the Church of England to say, what do we believe? So... They began in 1643, and they finished three years later in 1646, the Westminster Assembly. And the work that they completed is called the Westminster Confession. So the Confession is one of the most complete systematic expositions of Christian theology ever created. 
It is Presbyterian specific. So there are a number of denominations that modify the Westminster Confession to their particular beliefs for use as their own confession. And of course, that's we're talking about the Savoy Declaration, which is congregational, uh, of 1658 for Congregationalists, and of course, the 1689, although we're largely based on the Savoy, not on the Westminster. The Westminster Confession is still in use today, the majority of Presbyterian churches. Interesting enough, by the way, there was a significant difference. We're not going to go too, down, too far down this rabbit hole, but there was a significant difference in the government and the relations of the church to government in the Westminster Confession of England and the Westminster Confession of America. Because who called, the, who called these divines together? The parliament. The government did. So the government called together the bishops to come up with what we believe. So who's over who? Who's submissive to who? You see this. By the time we get to the New World and after the War of Independence, basically American Presbyterians changed those sections of the Westminster to adopt it as their own. And by the way, that's the way it's now accepted today everywhere. Even, the, even in England, eventually they accepted that same version of the Westminster. All right, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. So the First Baptist Confession of Faith was written in 1644. It was followed by a more expansive confessions, particularly the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declarations. I don't know why I had that little bit of a... Yeah, okay. Based on the Savoy Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession was written in draft form in 1677. However, due to the persecution of the king, nothing further happened with it for 12 years. So do you remember, I just said it, when Westminster happened? 1643 and 46, right. So what happened since then? New king. New king. Not tolerant. Not tolerant. So the Baptists are now underground. So even though they had written this, nothing happens for 12 years. After the Glorious Revolution of 1688, the Act of Toleration is, is uh, written or approved by Congress and William in 1689, gave the Baptists more religious and civil freedoms. So the representatives of, not just the Baptists, by the way, it was others, but... Representatives of 107 particular Baptist churches met for the first time in a general assembly in London, specifically to approve a unified confession of faith. That's why they met. They approved the document, and although it was written in 1677, they named it the 1689 due to the date of its adoption. So if somebody says, well, I believe in the 1677, it's the same document. They didn't change it. There were no modifications. It's ironic today that some Baptists think it is not a good idea to have a confession, but Baptists didn't think that 300 years ago. We have adopted this confession as our statement of faith. All right, so we're going to have to look at this, finish our introduction next week, and then we'll get into chapter one, or actually we'll get into the introduction to the confession. But uh, we'll start next week by talking about the primary objections to creeds and confessions, and we'll break those down. All right, let's close in a word of prayer.